This morning's message is entitled, When Jesus Finds No Fruit. In his autobiography, Made in America, Walmart founder Sam Walton, he describes three pillars that make a great company. Number one, respect for the individual. Number two, service to the customer. And number three, striving for excellence. On a quiet evening in Illinois in 2002, all three pillars were knocked down impressively in less than a half an hour. I'm going to read to you here what I read in a book, uh, and it will, well, it not only amuse you, but it'll get us thinking here a little bit as we head into our message. Heading into Walmart, the writer said, in Geniso, and this again is in Illinois, to pick up a prescription, a 73-year-old woman stopped by a newspaper box outside the store. As a woman removed her paper and turned away, the door slammed shut on the drooping hood of her jacket. Unable to wriggle out of the garment thanks to a recent shoulder surgery, the septagenarian, I think I pronounced that right, looked around for assistance. A young woman spotted her predicament and went into the store to find a helpful Walmart employee. Respect for the individual was on the way. Alas, the woman was informed that Walmart had a strict policy against tampering with newspaper boxes. So with the woman still held hostage by the Quad Cities Dispatch Argus, a Walmart employee, mindful of the all-important service to the customer, called the paper to have someone sent out to liberate her. The woman politely suggested that the employee simply cough up two quarters and open the door. This concept wasn't found in Sam Walton's book of employee hand, uh, the, the employee handbook. The store, she explained, didn't offer refunds for newspapers. Fifteen minutes passed. No sign of dispatch Argus rescue squad. Desperate, the senior laid out the plan again. Two quarters placed one after the other in the newspaper slot would result in unlocking the door, which would enable me to be free. Fifty cents, door, freedom. Throwing corporate guidelines to the wind, the employee tried the coin solution and bingo, another customer helped. Now the woman's grateful daughter later came to the store and entrusted a $5 bill to the Walmart employee for use solely to underwrite future pedestrian releases. It was proof that when people work together to strive for excellence, everybody wins, end quote. (laughs) That's a funny story for sure. We can all relate to certain company absurdities that we've all experienced. We've all entered well-known stores that makes high professions and our expectations that run high as we anticipate top-notch service. But when they're let down, or we're let down, those who know better treat us with indifference. What's the boss supposed to do with lackluster effort put forth by the staff? What would you do? I know what I'd do. What's a God to do with his people when they don't meet his simple expectations, especially when every provision has been made for their success? Jesus tells another fascinating story in the Gospels, and I want to encourage you, invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Tells another story that answers this very question. This one is right on the heels of the one about the two boys who were told to go out and work in their father's vineyard. That story was related to highlight the importance of obedience to the Lord. This parable 
answers the question, what's a God to do with His people when they don't meet His expectations? It's a tough question. We're dealing with solemn subjects here this morning, and so let's continue. The story is related. The story is shared. The parable is about a vineyard, but in this case, it's leased out to tenants that are to be cared, this, this vineyard is to be cared for. So let's read Matthew chapter 21, and we'll read verse 33 together. Matthew 21 and verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So Jesus tells the story about simply a certain landowner who rents out his vineyard while he goes away on a journey far away. Jesus is referencing the vineyard analogy God used to speak to Israel back there in the time of Isaiah. And when you read there in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1, Israel is the vineyard. And the men in that vineyard, according to verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 5, are the pleasant vine. God planted his vineyard, his church. He removed the stones. He placed a hedge about it. He put a tower in the middle of it, and he expected fruit to grow. That's what he expected. What was the fruit that he expected from his people? They were to reveal his principles, his character, the fruit of his goodness, his mercy, his truth, which was to stand out in direct contrast to the heathen nations who bore the fruits of violence and crime and greed and oppression. That was the first thing, to reveal his principles, his character, the fruit of his goodness. The second fruit they were to produce, and it's up there, was to lead others to trust God. They were to impart the blessings they received at the hand of God to others. They were to help them become acquainted with the true God. And the history of the Jewish nation started when he called Abraham out of idolatry to preserve God's truth about him. And his children and his grandchildren, Isaac and Jacob, and then, of course, Joseph also bore witness to the true God. And then God delivered Abraham's descendants out of that pagan nation, Egypt, to serve him and to continue the witness borne by those who came before. The possibilities for Israel were phenomenal. Phenomenal. Obedience would make them a marvel in prosperity, in wisdom, in skill, in enterprise, in health, in wealth, and most importantly, in character. All of these favors, however, were conditional upon obedience, obedience to God. Adam lost Eden through disobedience. So through Israel, God wanted to teach the nations the important spiritual truths of redemption and how to reclaim Eden. Having a relationship with God, obeying God, this is how restoration of Eden occurs. But sadly, as we know the story pretty well, they didn't fulfill their purpose. In Isaiah chapter 5, instead of bringing forth good grapes, they brought forth wild fruit, wild grapes. God had done everything for them to prosper and to succeed, but they failed. And so what's a God to do when His people don't meet His simple expectations? The story continues in Matthew 
chapter 21. Jesus isn't done yet. So the vine dresser, the landowner, goes, leases out his vineyard to these individuals so he can go away to a far country. Verse 34, now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers. He sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And so when the time had come for the landowner to take stock of his vineyard to see if any, any fruit was produced, he sent his servants. He sent individuals there to go and take account. So the landowner sends his employees to inspect the work of the tenant. Isn't God good? God is good. We're talking here about his church. God established his, his people there back there in the Old Testament, established them. They weren't doing too good in general at fulfilling his purposes. And so God sends someone and sends somebodies to help, to help out, sends somebodies to uh, guide them and to lead them. He doesn't just leave Israel to herself, but goes after her to see how she's doing and encourages her to meet her high expectations that he's justifiably placed on her. But sadly, sadly, they don't listen. The story continues, verse 35, and the vine dressers took his servants and beat one and killed one and stoned another. Verse 36, again he sent out other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. They refused to change. They refused to be transformed. They refused to bring forth the fruit of humility and self-sacrificing love. If only, if only they had realized that the outcome of their attitude would be robbing others of the religious guidance and holy example their heavenly Father had desired of them, but instead, instead they made the sacred things of God appear a farce. They became a huge stumbling block to the heathen, and they turned away from ever having the chance of receiving salvation through the Savior. Of course, the tenants in this particular parable that Jesus is teaching represented the religious leaders, not only of New Testament uh, Israel, but Old Testament Israel. They were not true to their trust, and they were self-serving you know, they had read the handbook, they'd read the law, they'd read the Word of God, and they'd pledged themselves obedience to it. All that the Lord has said, we will do is what they said. But instead, they placed policies around the intent of the law, thus loading heavy burdens on the people, enforcing them to conform to the customs not founded on the Word of God. All these heaped-up requirements, in turn, made God's people indifferent to the hurt and the needs of those not only in their midst, but also of those outside the camp. And as we're going to put it up on the screen, if you don't mind, they were stuck between policy and piety. That's where God's people were, stuck between policy and piety. They were stuck between knowing what they knew to, to, to be the right thing to do. Human decency based on humility and self-sacrificing love. That was spelled out in God's holy law. And they were stuck between that and mounted up policies, loopholes to avoid going out of your way, going out of their way to help others. And here's where our opening story is mimicked in the lives of God's ancient people. Like the Walmart employee who should have freed the hooded 70-something from the newspaper box but didn't because she was stuck between knowing what human decency dictated and her company's policy that prevented her from doing the right thing, Israel 
often found themselves troubled to truly help others because they were afraid to offend the religious bigots, the, the religious leaders who had said, it's, it's okay if your ox falls in the ditch on the Sabbath to go ahead and help them, but don't be helping any human being. That would be working and you'd be breaking the Sabbath. So what's a God to do? What's a God to do? In the story, and we know the history of Israel, he sends his messengers, he sends his prophets, but they're despised and they're persecuted and even killed for bearing their very straight and pointed testimony. Just read the stories of the Old Testament and you'll quickly find that in general, Israel often despised them. I don't know one prophet that I read about that had a cushy job. Their job was tough. And if there was a prophet that I wouldn't want to be, the prophet I wouldn't want to be was a prophet Jeremiah God, and Isaiah, or and Ezekiel actually, and Joel, and Amos. I mean, you just run down the list. They, they, they didn't have it easy. Uh, Isaiah was told, look, they're going to be hearing you, but they're not going to listen. Jeremiah was told that he was going to have difficulty and he was going to get himself into trouble for preaching the truth. And it was one time that Jeremiah said, look, I'm, I'm done. I'm not saying anything else about what you want me to say, God, because every time I do, I, I'm thrown into prison, I'm in trouble. And then he's, he's holding back, but he couldn't hold back anymore. And he says, I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. He had to speak and proclaim the word of God. No prophet had it easy. And the work wasn't to the heathen, to those who didn't believe. It was to those that believed that they had the greatest trouble with. The people of God. So what's a God to do? He sends them. They despise their prophets. They despise the messengers. And so what he does, according to the story, let's take a look. Matthew 21. Verse 37, then last of all, he sent his who? Son. He sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Surely they'll respect him. Verse 38, but when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. I mean, it's strange logic, isn't it? If we do away with the heir, we'll have, the, we'll have right to the throne. You think the king's going to grant murderers of his son to the throne? Jesus is, 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 uh, is, is speaking, sharing the absurdity of their reasoning because that was the absurdity of the reasoning of, the, of God's people back then. Where they even took the son, they rejected him. The religious leaders resented Jesus because Jesus was popular and was leading people away from them and their teachings. He got ner they got very nervous and they rejected Jesus and on, that, uh, on that, that farce of a trial, and when Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate, who did the crowd ask for? They didn't ask for Jesus. They called for Barabbas instead. They declared at that time that they had no king but Caesar and asked that the blood of Christ be on them and on their children. They killed God's only son. And they did this while declaring themselves to be the children of Abraham. So what's a God to do with the disappointed performance of his team, of his church, of his people? Look at verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus asks the question, the clincher, this is it. Have you been with me up to this point? He asks them. Here's the question for you, he says. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? 
They said to him in verse 41, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. They didn't know that the story was pertaining to them. They had no idea and so they shared the truth of the matter and Jesus said to them in verse 42, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 43, therefore I say to you, The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits thereof. God said, look, you've not been bearing good fruit. You've been bearing sour grapes. And I'm going to remove the blessings and the prerogatives of the gospel from you to someone else, others who will bear the fruit. God will give people, give it to the people who will bear fruit for him. Of course, Jesus was thinking prophetically here. The the, the Jews knew and read and knew very well the stories and the prophecies in the book of Daniel. And right there in Daniel chapter 9 was a prophecy that predicted the coming of the Messiah. Uh, The prophecy said that that he would be baptized in this year and that uh, that he would be cut off in this year. They all knew that this prophecy in Daniel 9 related to Jesus, the Messiah, and their time was just about up. By the time Jesus came upon the scene, how many years were left in that great 490-year prophecy? You remember, Daniel said 70 weeks. Gabriel said to Daniel, 70 weeks are determined upon that people cut off until give them time to get their act together, to sort it out. I'm going to give them 490 years from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be 483 years. How many years did they have left? From 457 BC, when when that decree went forth, it was the, 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 the most complete decree for the Jews to leave Persia, to go back and rebuild their city, their temple, their religion, their state, go back and do that. 457 BC, all the way until Messiah the Prince, 483 years, it would give them how long? Yeah, and Jesus died in the middle of that last week, the last seven years. When Jesus died, there was just three and a half years left. That's why Jesus told his disciples, you don't go out there. You go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When you preach, go to Jerusalem, go to Israel, then go to Samaria, and then go to the outermost parts of the world. Take it to my people first. They've only got a short time to get their act together and they're not doing well. Three and a half years left. Jesus was thinking prophetically. He was pleading with his people, it's going to happen if you don't shape up. So that was then. What about today, the church? What about us personally? What lessons are there for us when Israel failed? Where Israel failed, could we be at risk of repeating ourselves? Number one, I'm going to share with you six points. You can mark mark them down real quick. We're going to go through them. Number one, the Jewish nation prided themselves in their temple and their heritage, which which while the simplicity of godliness was lost sight of and the lost was seldom reached. Is it possible? Is it possible that the work of making mention of God's goodness and telling of his power is often sidelined for the sharing of the stories of the good old days. I belonged to, a, I was a pastor of one of my first, my first church district. My, one church, they called themselves the Eusta Church because they used to do this and they used to do that. Things had changed quite a bit. 
They were the used to church. Some churches uh, remember and reminisce about the good old days. And while it's good and important at times to reflect on how God has led His people in the past, and we're admonished to do that, because it'll give us courage for the future as we see how God has led us in our past. While it's good to do that at times, doesn't the same God who led us then want to lead us today? While some are pining the glory of the yesteryears, God is waiting for those who profess to serve Him to begin writing a new chapter in their history today. What God did back then, He'll do today, amen? Surely. So number one, the Jews prided themselves on their heritage and their temple. And God's people could be at risk of doing the same thing if we're not careful. Number two, Israel failed to possess the land. They failed to uh, root out the enemy. And they became influenced by the enemy, not leading the enemy to Christ. We don't want it to be said of us, we don't want it to be said of us that our zeal is cold and our service is feeble, therefore being marked as unfaithful. We don't want the world to see that we've lost our spirit of self-denial and cross-bearing. Will it be said of us, not producers, but consumers? Number three, the leaders failed in their responsibility to the people. And this is talking to the men. God asked the shepherds of the Old Testament era, where are your sheep? And God asked the religious leaders of Christ's day to give an account of the privileges God had bestowed upon them. Don't you think that God will come to the men of the church and say, where are your families? Surely he will. Don't you think he'll come to the leaders of the church and say, where is the flock that I entrusted to you? The responsibility lies on the shoulders of the gentleman. Number four, God's people failed because they didn't listen to the prophets. How well do we listen to the Word of God? This is written by the prophets, amen? How well do we do listening to the Bible? How do we take time to apply the words that we read there? Not to say, oh, that's a nice idea, Lord, great, I'll get on to that another day. God wants us to take what we read and apply it by His grace, to be doers of the Word like we were talking about earlier, not just hearers only. We've got, we've got growing to do. God knows that. Number five, Israel failed because they didn't obey, truly obey God's law. You know, legalism, we could define legalism in three ways. Legalism could be defined in three ways. First of all, the futile attempt to earn salvation by one's own, own performance. That's legalism. That's the common definition we hear about legalism or on legalism. It's someone's futile attempts to earn salvation by their own performance. But legalism is also the gaining of assurance by achieving a minimum standard. By saying, Lord, it's okay if I don't measure up. I'll just do this right here and we'll be, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be good, won't we? We'll be all right. Mm -mm. While we neglect something in our lives we know we ought to be doing or stopping something we ought to stop doing and being satisfied with that low standard, that's also legalism. Really, legalism is changing the purpose for which God's law was intended. God's law was intended to reveal to us our need of a Savior. And then when, we, when Jesus comes into our life, we look back into the mirror of His law, and Jesus is supposed to be reflected in every respect, His goodness and His grace, His character. So Israel failed because they failed to truly keep God's law. We must let the Holy Spirit write His law in our hearts and in our minds. That's the only hope of humanity, to let God do the miracle 
through the Holy Spirit in our lives. So Israel failed to obey God's law. And number six, and lastly, it's the capstone. They rejected the Messiah. They completely rejected the Messiah. The question for us is, and we've not rejected Jesus, the question perhaps for us is, do we spend time getting to know Jesus or are we content just knowing about Jesus? That may be a better question for us. I don't think anyone consciously here would have rejected or or will reject Jesus or has rejected Jesus, but are we spending time with him? Are we content getting to know him better or just to know about Jesus? A Christian may not reject Jesus, but it's just as dangerous, if not more, to neglect Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, Paul asks the question, what, uh, I mean, what's going to happen if we neglect so great salvation? It's a rhetorical question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? He didn't say reject it, he said simply neglect it. And so for God's people today, how are we doing when it comes to Jesus Are we spending more time with him than with uh, stuff, with our remote controls, with stuff? You fill in the gap. Whatever the gap is, whatever that is, do we spend time with Jesus, the one who spent time with us, who laid down his life, who lives for us, who's coming back for us. Everything he does is about you. It's time that God's people, and what they did, was all about him. Glorious possibilities can be realized by our loving obedience to the Lord. Let's not forget the big picture here. What a great honor God has bestowed upon us. What a huge privilege he's given to us to represent him in this world. And in return, the least we can do is to render him the fruit that he so longs to see in each one of us and in his church, the fruit of love, the fruit of humility, and the fruit of self-sacrificing service. That's all. That's all. And not much when compared with all that Christ has done for us. Not much when compared with the glories that will be revealed in us when Jesus returns. Not much when we consider what awaits those who love Jesus with all their hearts. It's not too much to ask, is it? We may have fallen in our attempts, yes. We may have tripped up on our efforts, forgetting that God wants to help us, yes. But the good news is is that God loves us and is willing, if we're willing to be picked up and have him set our feet on the right path path to do for us what is impossible for us to do for ourselves. Jesus wants to bring forth fruit in each of our lives. And even though we may have placed him second best in the life, or we may have never really accepted him as your personal savior, he's a savior, but is he your personal savior? Well, my friend, he's coming toward you and he offers you the greatest life you could ever possibly dream, dream, dream of having right here and beyond right here, holding out to you the marvelous possibilities of future life and an eternal life with him. He wants to help you. The question is, will you let him? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.